Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hogo and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Burundi crisis talks suspended ahead of controversial election and Kenya's Westgate Mall reopens after deadly terror attack. In economics, Air Madagascar workers end crippling strike action and in sports news, South Africa's Banyana beat Kenya in Olympic qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The trial of Chad's former president, his son Habre, begins in Senegal today. He's been charged with crimes against humanity, torture and war crimes. The trial will be the first in the world in which the court of one country prosecutes the former ruler of another for alleged human rights crimes. Habre will stand trial before the extraordinary African chambers in the Senegal court system. The chambers were inaugurated by Senegal and the African Union in February to 2013. The trial is expected to last three months with about 100 witnesses and victims expected to testify. Peace talks to resolve Burundi's political crisis ahead of presidential polls have been suspended. The breakdown in negotiations came after the government failed to turn up. The crisis was triggered by President Pierre Nkurunziza's decision to stand for a third term. The move sparked weeks of violent street protests in an attempted coup in May. Envoy of the facilitator, Ugandan Defence Minister Crispus Kiyonga, however, says the breakdown in talks does not mean the talks have failed. No, they have not uh, failed. Why? Number one, this was the first time when President Museven came that government and opposition sat together. Two, they agreed on what the issues are. Three, they have indeed started the discussion and on the issue of, uh, of peace and refugees, they have reached consensus. From the dialogue, the parties also agreed that all issues be discussed without any precondition. Nigeria's domestic intelligence agency has raided three properties belonging to the country's former national security advisor. The Department of State Security says the raids were conducted to prevent treason treasonable felony, a charge that can include plotting to overthrow the government. The raids were based on credible intelligence linking Mohamed Sambo Dasuki to alleged plans to commit treasonable felony against the Nigerian state. Numerous weapons were found in the simultaneous raids on properties in Dasuki's northern home state of Sokoto and the capital, Abuja. The SADC Commission of Inquiry into security events leading up to the killing of Lesotho's former army commander, Maparankwe Mahau, is expected to arrive in the country today. SADC Secretariat Executive Director Stegomena Lawrence Stax says the Oversight Committee will also start functioning in due course. Ntakwa Nangatane reports. 
Sadak says the two Lesotho ministers reiterated their commitment to ensuring restoration of peace, security and political stability in Lesotho ahead of the arrival of the Commission of Inquiry into Security today. Minister of Defense Siriso Mokhosi and Minister of Police Munyani Muleleki paid a courtesy call on Sadak Executive Secretary Dr. Stegomina Tex last week. The two were in Botswana to benchmark with that country on security-related matters. And finally, Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood says it's concerned the military-backed government is plotting to resume the killings of political prisoners. Senior Muslim Brotherhood member Gamal Hashmat says the Interior Ministry itself is facilitating prison breaks to pave the way for killing detainees in mass. Since the overthrow of former President Mohamed Morsi by former military chief and current President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in 2013, authorities launched a crackdown on Morsi's supporters. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Monday, July the 20th, the 201st day of the year 2015, with 164 days left in the year. Peace talks to resolve Burundi's violent political crisis were suspended on Sunday after the government side failed to show up. Crispus Kiyonga, the Ugandan defense minister who chaired the talks, said it was not clear why the government stayed away and said they would resume when it sends representatives. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. Although all involved parties in the current crisis in Burundi agreed to sit and discuss all conflicting issues, the talks that started on July 15th under the facilitation of the Ugandan Defense Minister, Dr. Crispus Kiyonga, have stalled without reaching an agreement on sticking issues, including the third term of President Pierre Nkurunziza, the root cause of the ongoing turmoil in the country. Although an opinion thinks of a failure in the talks, Dr. Kiyonga does not see it like that. No, they have not uh, failed. Why? Number one, this was the first time when President Museveni came that government and opposition sat together. Two, they agreed on what the issues are. Three, they have indeed started the discussion and on the issue of, uh, of peace and refugees, they have reached consensus. From the dialogue, the parties also agreed that all issues be discussed without any preconditions. The parties then agreed the top priority to start the process where one, security and refugees, two, the electoral calendar, three, government of national unity, and four, the third term for the incumbent president. So the dialogue has not failed. We must uh, give a chance to the government. Maybe they met a roadblock on the way. So the dialogue uh, has not failed. It is still on. We have only adjourned. His Excellency President Museveni said we should do, that they should negotiate on our facilitation intensively, continuously, and expeditiously. Uh, from the time President Museveni came here, indeed, the dialogue has been expeditious, even also when I came. It has been intensive, it has been continuous until now. And as I said, we give the benefit of the doubt to the government side if it is a temporary issue, if we are to continue tomorrow or 
the other day we shall do so a blockade came up on saturday afternoon when the burundi minister came up with a mysterious document signed by some of the opposition leaders claiming to set up a movement to stand for the respect of the 2000 Arusha Peace Agreement of Burundi, from which was drafted the current constitution of the country. On the side of the government, the opposition has a hidden agenda, and thus has decided to suspend the participation in the talks. The Minister of Internal Affairs told me he was holding a document which had been issued by opposition. In his interpretation, it showed that the opposition were still involved in the underhand activities despite the dialogue uh, so i said but give me the copy he gave me the copy but he was in french so we are agreed that we are adjourned so that two things happen one they interpret the document for me in english which they have done and two the government was going to have a meeting to understand that document and its implication so maybe one of the reasons the government and the parties allied to the government have not turned up, maybe they're examining that document. For me, the way I've understood the English, yes, some of the things are provocative, but not something to stop a dialogue. Because dialogue is talk about everything. You have to be tolerant. The issue is what comes out of the dialogue. We begin with extreme position, we close them, and we find a way forward. So, I would advise my brothers, the Minister of Internal Affairs, who has been with us here, that that document should not stop a dialogue. Meanwhile, the government is expected to hold the controversial presidential polls on this Tuesday. For Dr. Kionga, this shall not be a blockade to the talks. Dialogue is continuous. Even if elections take place on Tuesday, it does not stop the dialogue. For example, as you know, on 29th of June, the parliamentary and the community elections took place. But you see, we are still discussing. Sometimes it's an evaluation, sometimes it's to try and move the calendar forward. Uh, so even if the elections take place on Tuesday, the dialogue will continue. As the opposition accuses the government to play on time so as not to discuss the key issues like the third term of President Kuronziza and the electoral calendar, three presidential candidates, Sylvester Ntibantunganya, Domitian Dayizeye and Dr. Jaminani, have withdrawn their candidacy, a sign of boycotting the controversial elections. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Makukira reporting from Bujumbura. Kenya's Westgate shopping mall, the target of September 2013 Al-Shabaab militant attacks that left 67 people dead west of the capital Nairobi, reopened for business this past weekend. James Shimangula was one of hundreds of local and international journalists that attended the reopening of the mall. He filed this report. I'm right inside Westgate after... It has been officially opened by the governor of Nairobi, Ivan Skidero. One of Westgate's regular customers, Vinod Baratan, chief executive officer of the Nairobi-based Kenindia Insurance Company, is laconically upbeat about his return to the hypermarket shopping mall on the western fringe of the Kenyan capital. It's really a great feeling to see the mall open again. Gentlemen, are you working here at Nakuman? Yes, I do. Now, how does it feel to come back after almost two years? Fantastic. 38-year-old Ruth Malagala, one of the regular shoppers at Westgate, wishes that Westgate remains secure. I'm just praying that what happened uh, last time may not happen again this time, but we have faith in God that everything will go on smoothly. What goes through your mind right now looking at uh, Westgate once again? 
we have that fear of what happened, that it may not happen again this time. Atul Shah, the director of Nakumat Supermarket, one of Kenya's leading supermarkets, which suffered massive losses during the attack, had this sum up on the return of business at Westgate. Feeling, uh, it is full of uh, mixed feelings. There is emotion, there is joy, and there is a lot of pleasure to see that we are back on uh, at Westgate and that we will be able to serve our shoppers and all our well-wishers and all the staffs who are here are today. I spoke to them and they are all very happy to be back. Carol Mideka, 42-year-old survivor of the terrorist attack, a mother of four and a curio trader, mentally trod carefully, avoiding to recollect the deadly day in September 2013. It feels nice, this new life, yeah. When you talk of new life, what do you mean? Uh, you know, some of us are survivors here, so we've come back we thought it would be the same way it was last time but it's okay now how did you survive can you recall very briefly i don't like telling about that encounter what goes through your mind right now as you stand where you sell your curio nothing big i think it's just a new experience we forget about the past ami sangusha a businesswoman who came through a whisker of death but lost her husband expressed her feelings uh, it feels good to be back, hoping things would be back to normal. Let's be brave and uh, rule out everything. We do not want to be uh, scared by this terrorism. It is a bit emotional to come back here, but we're still looking forward to a better future. And yeah, we're going to move on in life. Nairobi City County Governor Ivan Skidero spoke of anxiety that is likely to engulf customers entering the reborn Westgate. Initially there will be apprehensions but I think what is important to note is uh, the resilience and the positive attitudes of uh, Kenyans. We've been able to within a period of 22 months to get Westgate to work and people to come back to shop starting uh, with Nakumat and Westgate is safe so I would just like to urge people to come and shop. That was Nairobi City County Governor Ivan Skidero. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyola. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveitwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rising. Le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibonji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel, Channel Africa. Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Tlio with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Swaziland human rights activists Tulani Masego and Begi Makubu have thanked the international community, particularly South Africa, for their role in helping with their release from a Swazi prison last month. The two were found guilty of contempt of court by the Swaziland High Court in July last year after they wrote opinion articles highlighting Swaziland's corruption in the judicial system and government. They were both sentenced to two years without an option of a fine. Selina Dobong reports. 
Tulani Maseko, a human rights lawyer, and Becky Makubu, a journalist and editor of one of Swaziland's independent publications, The Nation magazine, says they are overwhelmed by the support they've received throughout their detention and subsequent release on June the 30th. It is in times of trouble when you begin to see who your families are. At a time where I could feel that my government had disowned me simply for expressing views different from theirs. I also had the added experience of being invited by the Editors Forum in South Africa. And um, their reception there was, you know, mind-blowing. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cope with what is going on. We were sitting in jail, and you are sort of disconnected from the real world. I didn't know that so many people were concerned about our welfare. Masego and Makubu were charged with contempt of court following the publication of articles they had written which were critical of the country's Chief Justice Michael Ramudibedi and the entire judicial system. Beki Makubu says he knows for a fact that the arrest had full support of the government and that it was not in isolation of the political problem in Swaziland. The country's authorities have reacted to criticism by using repressive and violent tactics to clamp down on political activism, independent media reporting and peaceful protests. Amongst tactics used are beatings, torture and detention. Makubu says their arrests were political than for any other reason. Ramadibedi was pretty much doing what any sane person should have done, which is to shut us up and put us in prison. Because we've been writing too many articles complaining about the way Swaziland is run. And I believe and I know that he had the full support of government in what he did to us. And um, that is why the things that happened uh, went on despite you know, blatant evidence that the whole thing was being manipulated. Tulani Maseko describes their experience in prison. You wake up at five in the morning, they, they come and bang the door like heavily. Whether you're sleeping, you must, you must wake up. You, you pass. 6.30, quarter to seven, you must be out. They do the morning count and you must be there. As soon after that, you must go into the prison spans. You go to the garden, you go to what you call the main gang where you do prison work. At 11 o'clock they do the day counts again, you must be there standing in the line. And then at 3.30 the, the bell you know, rings again. You again go to, to the line and you queue. 4 o'clock you have your supper and then they lock you up. South African globally renowned human rights lawyer George Bezos, who gave a guest lecture at the reception, likened Maseko and Makubu's arrest and treatment to what used to happen to human rights defenders during apartheid in South Africa. They could be detained for three months at a time without a trial and were often released and then thrown back on the same day. House arrest, banning orders, whereby people were banned from attending gatherings or moving outside one's place of residence. A number of attorneys were banned, detained, forced into exile and prevented from doing legal work. 
Last month, Chief Justice Ramudibedi, who initiated the charges against Maseko and Makubu, resisted arrest on charges of corruption and abuse of power by locking himself up in his home in the city of Mbabani. A few weeks later, the king suspended Ramudibedi from his official duties. Makubu says he doubts Judge Ramudibedi's removal has taught the country's judiciary any major lessons. Sharing his sentiments, Maseko also says the Tingu system which gives the king absolute power over the executive, judicial and legislative arms of government must be overthrown. The crisis is not only in the judiciary, the crisis is in the governance of the country. So the problem is in the constitution of Swaziland. Because a detailed analysis will indicate to me that we have not departed from the era where the monarch commands supreme authority. And one other friend of mine from Zimbabwe, Stanford Moyo, says that uh, Swaziland uses culture and tradition as a base of oppression. I agree with that. Because you have a situation where human rights are subjected to the respect for culture and uh, customary laws. That was Tulani Maseko, human rights lawyer and activist in Swaziland, reporting for Channel Africa. I am Selina Ntobong in Johannesburg. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1994. After the 1994 national elections, South African President Nelson Mandela paid his first official state visit to neighboring country, Mozambique. That was today in history in 1994. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. The Mozambican High Commissioner to South Africa, Fernando Fazenda, says there is still a lot more that needs to be done by the South African and Mozambican governments in order to win the war against poverty. Fazenda was speaking at the commemoration of the 40th anniversary of independence of Mozambique held in Tonga near Komatiport in South Africa's Mpumalanga province. Mtobi Simkalipi reports. Over 1,000 Mozambicans who live in South Africa have gathered at the Mkupu Secondary School in Tonga to commemorate the independence of Mozambique. The Republic of Mozambique was liberated 40 years ago. Some of the residents who are originally from Mozambique say celebrating the independence of Mozambique in South Africa are a sign of good relations between the two countries. Some of them have also used the opportunity to celebrate Mandela Day. I can say now it's better. That's why we, we're trying to encourage the people to go back to Mozambique because we, we are also trying to, do, to make some business in Mozambique. In Mozambique. The economy some, uh, also is coming a little bit up. That's why we, we, we're trying to encourage everyone in South Africa that we, we also need South Africans to work together in Mozambique. In the same time, it's Mandela Day. So we appreciate very good because the people of South Africa will receive us with two hands. So that's mean that we are together, we're all Africans. The Mozambican High Commissioner to South Africa, Fernando Fezeda, says today's liberation struggle is against poverty. We are fighting to liberate our countries from poverty, to create better conditions for our people. 
If you go to Mozambique, you listen to President Nusi addressing the populations in Mozambique, he's going to talk about the battle of poverty. I listen to President Zuma addressing the people of South Africa who will talk about this struggle to liberate our countries, our people from poverty. So that's why these are great moments for all of us. Among those who attended the commemoration is the MEC for Arts and Culture, Sports and Recreation, Nora Mahlangumapena. She says it is important to always remember heroes and heroines who sacrificed their lives for liberation. We feel proud and happy to have Mozambique in our country to come and celebrate their 40th anniversary. It shows that we are one, we are all Africans, we are proud of them. In Mozambique, Independent Day was celebrated on the 25th June. I'm Tobis Mkalipi in Tonga, Pumalanga. The electoral period in Haiti is being described by top UN officials as a major moment for the people of the Caribbean nation. Around 6 million Haitians are expected to vote in municipal, parliamentary and presidential elections beginning on the 9th of August. The UN has been working to ensure that the country's institutions can fully take charge of the electoral process. Stephanie Kutrix reports on how the UN stabilization mission in Haiti, MINUSTA, and the Haitian National Police have been working hand-in-hand towards the common goal of peaceful elections. We begin in the streets of the capital, Port-au-Prince. Haiti's on the road to recovery following the devastating 2010 earthquake, which killed more than 200,000 people. A cholera epidemic then caused 9,000 deaths and affected more than 735,000 Haitians. Meanwhile, the country hasn't held an election since 2011. Most recently, last January, the parliament became dysfunctional with the end of the term of office of the entire Chamber of Deputies. For first-time voters like Jean Jackson, a 20-year-old law student, the excitement is palpable. He has been getting very involved in political campaigning and says he hopes all people will be able to benefit from the civil right to vote. It's really important for society to be able to vote. It is the way people can really choose who will lead the country so the country can get back on track and continue to develop. One of the main mandates of the UN Stabilization Mission in Haiti, or MINUSTA, which was established in 2004, is to assist the Haitian electoral institution with the organization of the national elections. Just weeks away from the casting of the first ballots, the head of MINUSTA, Sandra Honoré, said these elections must take place so Haitians can exercise their democratic right to decide who will run the country. She explained how the mission has been working to ensure the safety and security of millions of voters. One element of our rule of law mandate is the professionalization of the Haitian National Police. And so the mission has been working with the Haitian National Police with respect to the development of an integrated security plan for the elections, an integrated security plan that will cover the 10 departments of the country. This is, of course, going to be very important. Minusta's goal is to train 15,000 Haitian National Police, or HNP, officers by 2016. 
The mission's now close to that number with 12,000 HNP and several thousands more are expected out of the next two promotions. My name is Serge Thériault. I'm the police commissioner for the UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti for Minister. As UN police commissioner, Mr. Thériault is responsible for overseeing HNP training. Many of them, he explained, are young Haitians coming from what he called all walks of life, but mostly their students. He said in the past the HNP has successfully managed to ensure people's safety at large gatherings such as the annual carnival, and that next month these elections will be evaluating their capacity. If the elections are successful and the HNP are the ones that have managed this activity as far as security, they know that they will have passed the test and we will know that we ha- they have passed the test so that we can move on because we will have brought back security and stability. We will have developed the HMP to a level of professionalization that is acceptable and they will have successfully run the elections. My only disappointment, I will say, is that we were not able to test the capacity of the HMP on two previous electoral cycles. So now the challenge is is, uh, that much increased for them in that they haven't had a practice run. Mr. Thériault assured that if the national police needs support, the UN police, called UNPOL, will contribute additional security. And if the situation needs further backup, military peacekeepers can also be called upon. Until recently, there had been over 4,600 troops in Haiti, now there are a little more than half that number with the gradual downsizing of the mission. This reduction of MINUSTA personnel is due to the country's improvements and the transfer of law and order to the National Police. Here's Force Commander Lieutenant General José Luis Jaborandi Jr., the leader of the entire Blue Helmet contingent in Haiti. The main actor in keeping the security situation during the electoral process is going to be the National Police as the first response. The second response is going to be achieved by you and Paul supporting the national police. And the military component is expected to be deployed as the last and the third response, just in case if the number one and two responses are not able to solve the situation. Meanwhile, the UN is also highlighting that the Haitian government has demonstrated what it called commendable commitment towards the creation of a conducive environment for these upcoming elections. Stephanie Kutrix, United Nations. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. U.S. President Barack Obama hosts Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari at the White House. The trial of Chad's former president, his son Habri, gets underway in Senegal and peace talks to resolve Burundi's political crisis ahead of the presidential polls have been suspended. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes 
in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character, of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. Scores of elderly neighbors and friends gathered at the Mandela family restaurant in Villagazi Street in Soweto Township to celebrate Mandela Day. Winnie Matigizela Mandela for her 67 minutes of service to the community in honor of her late former husband hosted a lunch for those invited. She distributed blankets and goodie bags before the guests who included singing legend Abigail Kubega and Minister and the President Jeff Khadebe were treated to a hearty meal. Busi Chimombe reports. A number of the elderly residents who attended Struggle Stalwart, Winnie Matigizela Mandela's lunch, in late former Nelson Mandela's honor, still vividly remembers the tall, light man with a parting in his hair that jogged the streets of Orlando West when they were young children. 77-year-old Elizabeth Goba. That I was still working in Johannesburg, Adulamo, Ronerbalako uh, High School, lower primary, not even high school. When, I remember him. Very well. That they were strict but very kind. A long-time resident of Vilagazi Street, Nokaya Mgulwa, says her husband was Mandela's one-time driver and she still remains close to the family. She says those that Madiba left behind should not be forgotten. Then we were grieving because he had died. But now it is time for us to celebrate and send him off well. But we must be taken care of. My pain is that no one cares to look out for her. Amongst the ordinary folk, some high-profile guests graced the event. Amongst the minister and the presidency, Jeff Khadebe, who urged that today across the country, citizens must ask what they can do for their country and not what their country can do for them, and serve their 67 minutes to honor Mandela. Khadebe also paid tribute to Matigizela Mandela. We are probably the only politician I know who still lives at where it happens, here at Katsi in Soweto. Thank you for that uh, leadership and also that reflection that let's develop the places where we live. I'm also happy that uh, this function is taking place in Villarazi Street. It is the only street in the world where there are two Nobel Prize winners, Archbishop Tutu and Nelson Mandela. For her part, a very modest Matigizela Mandela spoke of the need to use a day like this to recommit to the values that underpinned the struggle for liberation, democracy and non-racialism. She urged patience as the country seeks to transform itself. We want to say to our people who express themselves sometimes very angrily about the difficulties the government is faced with in attaining those values we promised, that can we be patient and allow our country to take its course in developing to what we fought for. After goodie bags and blankets had been distributed to the guests, proceedings were wrapped up by singing happy birthday to the late former president and eating cake. 
That report by Busi Chimombe. Nelson Mandela's home village of Tkunu in the eastern Cape province of South Africa was a hive of activities as the world celebrated the Mandela International Day on Saturday. His grandson Daba Mandela has donated more than 70 linen, toys and television sets to the children's ward at the Nelson Mandela Academic Hospital in Mtata. South African Broadcasting Corporation Foundation also landed a helping hand and renovated the local school. Makaya Komisa has more. The Nelson Mandela Day has been celebrated in style in Kunu in the Eastern Cape. Mandela's grandson started the day with what was very close to Matiba's heart, children. He donated more than 70 sheets of linen, toys and television sets for a children's ward at the Nelson Mandela Academic Hospital in Tatam. Ndaba says the aim is to put a smile on the face of the children. He says Mandela was very much fond of children. We asked him one day during a shooting of a documentary, what is the one thing that you missed most? about being in jail. And he said to us, the one thing I miss all those years in jail, I never saw or heard the sound of children. And that is why children play such a special role in Matiba's heart. Eastern Cape Health Department spokesperson Sizwe Kupelo has welcomed the gesture. We are married to the Mandela family and the fact that uh, the grandson, his grandson, has decided to spend his 67 minutes here illustrate that indeed there is an imbecile cord between Nelson Mandela Academic Hospital and the Mandela family. Meanwhile, SABC employees, soapy actors and artists also devoted their 67 minutes to painting and cleaning the Tandokazi Junior Secondary School in Konum. The dilapidated school had broken windows, doors and falling walls. The SABC Foundation CEO, Aris Cupido, asked people to make every day a Mandela day. We chose two things that are important to us and were important to Mandela, education and children. So we had a prime school because these two things were close to Mandela's heart and they fall, fall into the pillars of the SABC Foundation. So we Some learners have fond memories about the late Matiba. Mandela fought for our freedom so today people are celebrating him. I feel good about him. I'm proud of him I, and I think he's proud of me. School principal Nunkululeko Mandela Habe welcomed the gesture saying the school had no adequate funds to refurbish the dilapidated structure. We we are happy today that we get the Mandela Day. We say thank you to the SAPC Foundation for, for cleaning us the school, for making us people, for, so, and also for being with us. A pop concert which was graced by the international and local artists has seen various people from Kunu and surrounding areas being entertained. Amakaya Komisa in Kunu in the Eastern Cape. Global president of SOS Children's Villages International, Sidatu Kawo, is in South Africa, drawing attention to the need for more focus on child welfare. This includes providing for good health, education and safety for children living in harsh and difficult home conditions. Kawo says, like in many countries, South Africa needs to channel more of its resources to the younger generation and improve their employment opportunities. Jane Matabula spoke to Kawo to find out more about his visit. Well, you know, SOS Children's Villages have been working in South Africa since 1980 and today we are taking care of helping in 11 different locations in South Africa. Over 10,000 children are in our different programs. So I have actually come 
to familiarize myself with the work in South Africa, as well as to discuss with our colleagues how we can assist them to reach more and more young people. And when I talk to you, I'm sitting in our village in Mamalodi, which has been in operation for last 30 odd years. And uh, we visited yesterday, quack, quack, I can't get it right. <laughs> quack, quack. Uh, yeah, and then we'll be going to Rustenburg and other locations, yes. Basically to understand what are the challenges which we face, yeah. Now take us through the challenges. What is it that you have gathered in terms of the plight of children, particularly in South Africa? I think our biggest challenge is to prepare our youngsters in a suitable manner that they can go out in the society, find proper employment, be self-supporting, so that to equip them both with technical and other skills, academic skills, and also give them self-confidence because given the challenges which they face and the things they see around, high rate of unemployment, so they get a little desperate, and this is where our biggest challenge is there. Also, you know, the number of young adults and children who need assistance, we don't have sufficient resources for that. So we have had challenges in raising resources within South Africa. For the last 35 years, a lot of these resources have come from outside of South Africa, and now we are also trying to find financial and human resources in the country so that we can carry on our programs. So I would say these are the two main challenges. Now, you've touched on my next question. I was about to ask, what's your assessment of the country's efforts to address issues affecting children? What's working and what doesn't seem to be working? I think it's an issue which is not only relevant to South Africa, but it is in most countries. The amount of resources which the government dedicates to the next generation, as far as we are concerned, are rather insufficient. We need greater input in appropriate education, preparing them for the future. More money is needed for education, for health, and also to create a possibility that there are enough jobs available for young people when they come into this so-called job market. So as far as we see it, the governments can do a lot more and also the civil society can do a lot more. The focus needs to shift towards the younger generation a lot more. Our resources must go a lot more to the younger generation. The world is getting younger, not older, not in South Africa at least. And finally, Mr. Cowell, what more can the broader society do in efforts to ensure that children are well taken care of and grow up in loving and healthy environments? I think what the broader society needs to do is, first and foremost, treat children with respect and understand that the society has a responsibility towards children, and this responsibility must not just be talked about. It must be acted upon. So there are organizations like we in SOS Children's Villages and other like-minded organizations who are working towards that, and people need to put their trust and their money and other resources. Give them sufficient resources so that they can function. You know, good words are not enough. You also need money. And so I would request through you, to your listeners, please help wherever you see the need, help. And that would go a long way in meeting the needs of children and young people. That was Siddhartha Kaul, Global President of SOS Children's Villages International, speaking to Jane Matebula.
Let's go back in time to today in 1970. South African Prime Minister B.J. Foster reveals that South African scientists have succeeded in developing a new process for uranium enrichment. That was Today in History in 1970. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. With more history today in 1989, Burmese activist Aung San Suu Kyi was placed under house arrest by the military government of Myanmar. That was today in history in 1989. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8:46 Central African time, and our economics update up next with Tabi Solehuko.
South African employees who are members of the Communication Workers Union at Mobile Company MTN are expected to resume work on Monday following a two-month strike. The union reached an agreement with the management of the mobile telecommunications firm last week. The agreement will see permanent contracts and other benefits for workers. Earlier, the union said it was confident that the jobs of the employees were safe. It says MTN management has given the assurance that there will be no job cuts following the strike. Air Madagascar workers have ended a strike that has grounded most of the state-owned carriers' fleet for weeks. This after the union and the carrier signed a deal. The airline says it expects the staff to return to work, with the flights resuming shortly. The strike started on June the 15th over what workers said was poor governance and mismanagement of the airline, leading to a 65-70% to 70% cancellation of flights. Madagascar officials want more foreign firms to start flying to the Indian Ocean island nation to boost tourism. Kenya's Westgate Shopping Mall, the target of September 2013 Al-Shabaab militant group attack that left 67 people dead west of the capital Nairobi, reopened for business this past weekend. James Shimanyula filed this report. It's really a great feeling to see the mall open again. Gentlemen, are you working here at Nakuman? Yes, I do. Now, how does it feel to come back after almost two years? Fantastic. 38-year-old Ruth Malagala, one of the regular shoppers at Westgate, wishes that Westgate remains secure. I'm just praying that what happened uh, last time may not happen again this time, but we have faith in God that everything will go on smoothly. A former leader of the Libyan Investment Authority, Abdul Mahid Breish, warns that the country's 67 billion US dollar sovereign wealth fund is not the best way to start unfreezing and managing the fund's assets. The fund has yet to be fully entangled after the ouster of Muammar Gaddafi four years ago. It is at the center of a bitter power struggle, even as its staff are trying to trace those responsible for billions of dollars of missing money. As Africa emerges as the next big market, luxury brands are starting to take an interest. Worth an estimated four billion US dollars, the African luxury market is certainly nothing to smirk at. Ferraris in the streets, Louis Vuitton handbags might sound like a fancy club in Paris or London. Onlookers say it tried Johannesburg or Lagos. Research has shown that the median African consumer tends to be the brand brand loyal rather making it even more important to be the first on the ground. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.35 South African Rand, 9.77 in Botswana, 7.60 in Zambia, 6.4 British Pound, 9.2 Euro, Gold, $1.107, Platinum, $9.66 an ounce, Brand Crude, $5.7, 0 cents a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lehoku with an economic update here in Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with netball news, 
South Africa's national netball team has departed for New Zealand ahead of the 2015 Netball World Cup. The showpiece takes place from the 7th to the 16th of August. The spa protests will stop in New Zealand first, where they are set to play two test matches before opening the World Cup campaign. The first test match will be played on the 27th of July in Hamilton, while the second will be played on the 29th of July in Auckland. Speaking at the team's farewell dinner, which took place at the Southern Sound Hotel in the country's capital, Pretoria, on Saturday night, Spa Proteus captain Mareka Hortenhazen says they are ready for what awaits them in Sydney. It seems like just yesterday we got together as a squad and started preparing for World Cup and hoping that we can be in this 12 chosen to go to Sydney. And here we are at the forefront of a future with limitless possibilities, great opportunities and a chance to make history for South Africa. How fitting that we can restart this journey in the presence of our parents, our partners, our family and our friends, our biggest supporters. Thank you for being here tonight and thank you for dreaming our big dreams with us. Our bags are packed and we are ready to go. Prepared for what awaits us in Sydney. On athletics news, it was mission accomplished for Ethiopian athlete Ginezebe Dibaba. The 24-year-old set a new world record in the women's 1,500 metres at the Diamond League meeting in Monaco. Our correspondent Gesho Myati filed this report. Ginezebe Dibaba had planned to break the world record well before the race. She maintained the tempo from start, staying close behind two hired pacemakers to do the job. Dibaba lifted the pace before the sound of the bell and opened a big lead ahead of Sifan Hassan of the Netherlands. At the approach of the 200-meter curve, Dibaba glanced at the big electronic timer. She went even faster on the home straight. Part of the crowd stood up to cheer the Ethiopian as they realized the world record was on fire. Dibaba dipped on the line in 3 minutes 50.46 seconds, destroying the 1,500-meters world record set by a Chinese athlete 22 years ago in 1993. It was all joy and celebration for the young athlete who punched the air and waved to the supportive crowd. Now to football news, South Africa's senior women's team Bayana Bayana managed a hard-fought 1-0 win over the Harambe Starlets of Kenya in the 2016 Rio Olympic Games qualifier at the Dobsonville Stadium on Saturday afternoon. The match was the first leg of round three. Lebohang Ramalepa scored the only goal of the match late in the second half. Head coach Virapao's charges created a lot of chances in the opening minutes of the game but could not convert any of them. Coach Virapao says they were lucky to secure all three points on offer. At the end, we have to be lucky that we have three points. We are lucky, let's say it like that. But um, on the other hand, if you miss so many chances and open chances, um, you get the bill presented, we say. Yeah? And um, it, it went to a very, very tough second half because they were sitting deeper and deeper and deeper into their own half. Uh, and it shows if you have a few new players, especially up front, that um, it harms your teamwork. And people underestimate what it means to have um, new players up front because the closer to the goal, uh, the more finesse there is in teamwork. Uh, and you don't get, get that in a few days. You don't get that right in a few days. Meanwhile, Harima Starlet's head coach David Omar hailed his team on their performance against the South Africans.
Fantastic. I think uh, we tried to contain South Africa because we came late to at uh, 1.30 this morning. So the objective was we had uh, my players uh, really we didn't have the recovery time. The, the, the rest period was shorter. So it means uh, we had to contain them. So for me, I think uh, we tried to play uh, very well in terms of not giving them the opportunity to score. So it's unfortunate, but we considered one goal. But for me as a coach, I think uh, this is possible to overturn it back at home. Well, the second leg will be played in the in Machakos, Kenya, in two weeks' time. Power knows it will be a tough encounter away from home. Well, we see it will be a tough encounter, but we will create chances also. The biggest thing is that we didn't get a goal against here. Um, and all credits to our four block, the two, two centre-backs and the two midfielders, um, who've done, who've done um, fantastically. Uh, to me, they were the players of the match. Because of them, we kept our structure, and um, they kept on trying and trying and trying and to find openings uh, over the wings, through the centre. Um, but I repeat again that um, teamwork in the final third is, um, needs, to, needs to develop. All those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine it for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Jane Matebula, technical producers Fiso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930. You can also tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with a song titled Ravisi. <laughs>